All right, it's good to see everybody. It's like, oh, it's fall, people are back. It's uh, beautiful weather out. I'm glad to see all your faces. We've been in a little sermon series that we've been doing that I've been calling Jesus Unplugged, where we've been looking at some of the parables just to try and get a little better understanding of who Jesus was and why it was that people found him so compelling as well as challenging. And so we're going to talk about one this morning, and I will say I, I printed it out, and it's on both of the, the music stands when you come in, so if you didn't get it, it might be helpful because it's actually kind of a long parable, so feel free to get that. But this is one that I have never actually preached on before in 15 years of preaching. I was kind of taking a look at which parables have I not done, and I thought the main reason I haven't done it is because I don't like it. <laughs> but I was rereading this one about a year ago, and I had this moment where I was like, oh, you know what, I think I just have maybe fundamentally misunderstood this story. And so sometimes I keep a little folder on my computer that's like notes to future Emily for ideas for sermons. And so I had a couple little notes on that where I was like, you know, I think maybe it might be time for a little revisit and it happens to fit in this series. So here we are, future Emily is gonna have a go at it here. And this is called The Parable of the Talents. And talents are just a unit of money, um, so it's not like actually like your, you know, your skills, your whatever, singing or music playing. It's the parable of money, or the dollar, you could say. So we're going to read it here in just a second, but first I want to take a look at the setting of it, because that is always really helpful to see what Jesus is saying. And so for this particular parable, Jesus is traveling up to Jerusalem. He's going up there with a whole bunch of people. They're going for the Feast of the Passover. And he is going up there for the very last time. So Jesus is about to have a really bad week, at the end of which he's going to be arrested and hung on a Roman cross, executed by the state. And he can kind of sense that that clock is ticking. Right? He, he seems to have a pretty good idea that the big powers um, are conspiring against him. And the things that he's been preaching about and advocating for have been stirring up enough um, sort of ether that he can tell this is not going to go well and that it might have him killed, right? He'll be a scapegoat for the wider tensions that are going on. He also knows that some of the people that he's traveling with into the city have a different expectation for what's about to happen in Jerusalem, right? So many of them have this hope that he's going to be going into Jerusalem and he's going to be able to use the influence that he has and the following to go and perhaps overthrow the Roman Empire, right? So some of them have this expectation that he might be leading a revolution and that they're going to be part of this. And so that's how the story starts. It says that that's their hope or their expectation for him. And then Jesus tells them this story. So we're going to read this. I did the voice translation um, this is a story that's found in Luke. It's also found in the Gospel of Matthew. So Jesus is speaking. He says, A ruler once planned a journey to a distant country to take the throne of that country and then return home. Before his departure, he called ten of his servants and he gave each of them about three months' wages. And he said, Use this to buy and to sell until I return. And then after he departed, the people who were under his rule despised him and they sent a message to a, or sent messengers with a clear message. We do not want this man to rule over us. Well, he went off and he successfully assumed kingship of the distant country, and then he returned home. And he called those ten servants together, the ones that he'd given all the money to, and he said, Give me an account of your success in doing business, the money that I entrusted to you. And so the first one came before him and said, Lord, and just so you know, Lord does not mean God here, it's the title that was used by the Romans. 
So you say, Lord, I made 10 times the amount that you entrusted to me. And the ruler replied, well done. You are a good servant indeed. Since you've been faithful in handling a small amount of money, I will entrust you with authority over 10 cities in my new kingdom. The second came and said, Lord, I've made five times the original amount. And the ruler replied, I'll entrust you with authority over five cities. And then a third came and said, Lord, I've successfully preserved the money that you gave me. I wrapped it up in a napkin. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says he buried it in the ground. And I hid it away because I was afraid of you. After all, you're a tough man. You have a way of taking profit without making an investment and harvesting when you didn't plant any seed. And the ruler replied, I will condemn you using your very own words, you worthless servant. So I'm a severe man, am I? So I take profit without making an investment and I harvest without planting seeds, right? How dare you accuse me of these things? Then why didn't you at least invest my money in the bank so I could have at least gained some interest in it? And the ruler told the onlookers, take the money that I gave him and give it to the one who multiplied my investment by 10. And then the onlookers replied, they said, Lord, he already has 10 times the amount, like, right? He doesn't need more. And the ruler responded, listen, whoever has some will be given more. Whoever doesn't have anything is going to lose what he thinks he has. And these enemies of mine, the ones who didn't want me to rule over them, bring them here and execute them in my presence. And when he finished the parable, he pushed onward, climbing the steep hills toward Jerusalem. Now, before we get into this, I've got a little story. This was probably about 20 years ago, and this was before I was pastoring. I was in my early 20s. I was only kind of attending church, right? I didn't really know anybody. I'd come in late, and I'd leave early. But I have this memory of having this short conversation in the lobby of the church with a woman who was singing on the music team. And to this day, I don't know who it was, so it's not like I have somebody in mind. I have no idea who it was. But I remember it coming up somehow that my minor in college had been voice, right? And I was just a few years out of college there. And I remember that because I remember her looking at me and saying, so are you singing someplace now? And I was, I don't know what I said, but it was probably something like, I, you know, I don't really know anybody. I just moved here. I'm working at Borders corporate office. I'm just kind of doing my thing. And she looked at me and said, did God give you permission to bury your talent in the ground and hide it? <laughs> right? <laughs> Rude. <laughs> what do you say to that? It's so judgy. But that kind of thinking comes from the traditional way of reading this parable. It's what I hate about this parable. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the traditional way, because I'm sure probably many of you, if you know this, that's probably how you've heard it interpreted. And then I'm going to offer a little different interpretation of it. Right? So in the traditional interpretation, the ruler in this story is God. And the servants that God gives all this money to are people who are following God. And then the other people who despise the ruler are the people who don't believe in God. Has anybody heard that interpretation of this? I've got a Brandon in the back, a few, yeah. And so if that's the case, the story's interpretation goes something like this. God goes off and takes a journey to a distant place, usually interpreted as like heaven. God goes to heaven to establish the rulership of that place, to take their throne before they return to the earth on some unspecified date in the future. Right, so in this imagining, God is like going to take the throne of heaven, probably through Jesus' death and resurrection. That's kind of how the, they fit the puzzle pieces together with that. 
And so while God is away going and establishing this heavenly kingdom, God leaves their followers here with different like gifts and talents and sometimes money, whatever it is, that we're supposed to invest in ways that serve God and that serve God's interests. And then when God comes back again, we'll be asked to like prove our loyalty to God by showing how we've used these gifts and talents for God's benefit. Right, so that ruler, he tells that first servant, he says that he's been faithful. Right, he doesn't get him and say, oh, you've been successful. He says, you've been faithful. Right, it's like a loyalty test that's going on here. Well done. You're a good servant indeed. Since you've been faithful in handling a small amount of money, I'll entrust you with authority over 10 cities in my new kingdom. In the heavenlies, you'll have so many mansions. Right, so this first servant who's made a lot of money is loyal. The third servant who didn't use the money is disloyal then. Right, so the message is if you refuse to use what God has given to you in this life, you are unfaithful to God and you're in danger of God taking away everything that you have and giving it to someone else. Right, that was a little bit what that woman was saying to me. Like, if you don't use your voice, if God didn't tell you that you didn't have to use that, you might be in danger, right? Just like, beware. But I thought, in my theological framework and the way that I understand and experience God, I think there's a couple of problems with this interpretation, which we all intuit, I think. And the first one is, is that the kingdom of God in Jewish tradition isn't some like far off place that God needs to go to to establish like their rulership, right? To go claim their throne is what the, the parable says. In Jesus's teachings, the kingdom of God is like right here. It's breaking forth right now. That any time that goodness and justice and peace and love, any time that stuff is breaking into our lives or into our, our, um, our neighborhoods, the places where we live and work, that is the good realm of God at work. So there's something about just the start of the story that for me doesn't quite square with the other ways that Jesus talks about God's rulership. It just has this like, this seems a little bit off. The second problem I see, which is probably the biggest one, is the description of the ruler, right? It says he's a rich man. And he's not just rich, right? There's nothing wrong with having money. He said there's, the love of money is the root of all evil. But he's like an ultra-rich man, like super rich. The landowners at that time who had servants were in like the top 2% economically. And so in Matthew's version of the stories, we have not just servants, but they're actually slaves, so it starts out with, he's a super rich dude who's probably enslaving people. And then the story says that the people under him despise him. And then when we carry it on, the third servant, he says he's scared of the ruler, right? He said, I hid my money away because I was afraid of you. And then he goes on and he describes this guy as a tough man who takes money from other people and he doesn't deserve it and he hasn't earned it. And then the ruler kind of proves his point. He takes the third money or the third man's money away, and then he has all the people who despise him just like executed in his presence. And presumably that would be in the presence of the three servants he brought as well, right? He does this in a very public way to make a point. He lives up to his reputation of being a tough and scary man. And I think that in such a short story, there's a lot of information telling us that this ruler is not a good person. So why have we thought of him as God? Well, it's been brushed off a little bit as being just like kind of part of God's authority. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit, and I'll just say, if this next part is helpful to you, great. And if it's, if it's like way too much, don't worry about it. You do not need to know this. 
You don't need to understand church history or theology, but I think the context might be helpful for some of you who maybe grew up with this kind of lens. And I think most of it stems largely from what is called the Reformed tradition of the church. They probably shouldn't carry the entire blame for it, but in the Reformed tradition, I would say especially in the last 50 to 500 years, um, God was often viewed as like a loving but very stern father figure who would punish you harshly if you step out of line, right? So it was like a patriarchal figure who rules his children with a real strictness. So for those of you who come from maybe more of an evangelical background, like if you know like a Mark Driscoll, who I think is a a terribly abusive pastor, but he is part of what's called the neo-reformed tradition, and this would very much be a part of that view of God. It is alive and well in large segments of the church. And to be fair, though, there's also a lot of progressive reformed pastors and theologians who have discarded this, right? So there's still a pretty big umbrella but this picture of God is very much part of that tradition, and it's, it comes from this idea of what they would say is a high view of God's sovereignty, meaning just like what God says goes, and we don't have to understand why. All right, so if the ruler in this story, if he seems mean or greedy or erratic, it's kind of like not up to us to question that, but to just kind of obey the command to use our talents, because God probably has a good reason then for being harsh that we just don't fully understand, All right? So that's the thinking. And to me, that's really the only way you could make sense of the ruler being God is kind of to just say, don't ask questions. It's a mystery. But I think we need to remember that it's Jesus telling the story. Right? And when Jesus described God in other places, it just sounded a lot different than this. It was a lot more like God is like a woman who's lost a coin, who's searching everywhere to find it. Or God is like a shepherd who's looking for that one sheep. Or God is like a mother hen who is protecting her, her little chicklets under her wings and keeping them safe from harm. Or God's like a woman who's kneading yeast into some dough. Or John tells us God so loved the world, right? Not just some people and the others he's going to have executed in front of you, but God so loved the world. So God is not described by Jesus in other places as like a taskmaster or a harsh ruler, but a kind, caring, protective figure. And so when I was rereading this parable last year, I just had this little thought, and that was, you know, maybe the hero in this story isn't the ruler. Or maybe the hero isn't servant one or servant two, who we often think of as sort of the heroes. Like, look at how well they used their talents that God gave them. Maybe the ruler isn't God at all. Maybe the hero... It's the servant who went and like buried his money in a napkin or put it into the ground. And if that's the case, what would that look like if he's the hero? And I think, okay, well then who's the ruler? And the logical question then to ask as Jesus is traveling with people who would have understood the context, well, who has the privilege and power in Jesus's time and place? Well, mainly the Romans who, like the ruler in the story, often go outside of their home territory of, you know, sort of Italy, to go gain kingdoms abroad. And Jesus lived his entire life under Roman occupation, and his people resented this, right? When it says that the other people in the story did not like the ruler, like, that's very relatable for them. You know, when Jesus' parents were young, when Mary and Joseph were growing up in the Galilee, in the hills of northern Israel, The Romans came and they squashed a revolt there where they were killing 500 people a day. General Verus crucified thousands. 
all up in the hills of the Galilee. Jesus would have grown up with stories about that. His parents may well have seen some of that. And I know that if someone, if some big power came along to like the Ann Arbor Ipsy area and crucified thousands of people, we would hear about that for generations, right? That, that would be an event. That's the context. So this ruler's people despised him, like Jesus' people despised Roman occupation. So I think Rome is a good candidate for the ruler. Another good candidate might be King Herod the Great. He was dead by the time Jesus told this story, but his sons were still ruling. And they had literally gone to a distant land, to Rome, to claim their throneship over Palestine, where Jesus lived. Right, so it could be several different things that are going on here, but it's mostly Jesus addressing the powers that are exploiting people, right? So whether this is Rome or local people who are cooperating with Rome, I think those seem like a little bit more plausible um, fits for the story. And as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, Jesus did not have a whole lot for the people who cooperated with the Roman Empire for their own gain. And we see servant number one and servant number two cooperated with the evil ruler for their own personal benefit. Right? If we're looking at it in that way, they were the ones cooperating with the evil ruler. And if that third man is to be believed, the ruler made his money off of exploiting people. Right, so servant number one, servant number two were willing to participate in this ruler's exploitative money-making schemes. They were willing to declare royal, or loyalty to like a mafia-like boss so that they could also have some power in this world. I mean, where else do you get to like make ten times your money, even within a few years, or five times, which is what they did? Seems likely there was probably a little something going on that they were working out. So servant number three comes into the scene, and he's just like, I don't like that. And instead, he tells the truth to the man's face. He comes up to him, he's like, you make me afraid. You're tough. Everything that you have earned has been off the backs of other people, and I don't want any part of what you're offering. There's one scholar that I was reading who described that servant as a whistleblower. It's the one in the system who's looking at it and just calling out the evil. And there's something about that that rings true, right? This choice costs that servant money and power, which is what often happens to whistleblowers. So who's servant number three then in the story? I think there's a few possibilities. One of them, it might be where Jesus is placing himself in the story, although I think there's another space that could be him as well. Because Jesus went around and he was just telling the truth about the exploitation of his people. He's opted out of that corrupt system with much of the way that he was doing ministry and operating. Right? And I, I did find the people, I, I'm not alone in this interpretation. Um, it took me a little while to find some other scholars who were saying this because a lot of it is from, from the Reformed tradition. But then I found one and then I started following a trail back and I was like, okay, all right. There's a whole bunch of people who have also seen it this way. So while the outcome for servant number three doesn't look that appealing, I don't necessarily think that Jesus is saying this is what always happens to people who stand up to the power. It certainly could mean that. But I think that maybe this story was serving a little bit more of like an immediate communication need. right, so if we remember the setting of what Jesus was doing when he was telling the story, right, he's about to be killed. He's going up to Rome with people. Some of them think that he's about to lead a revolution. And I think that he's like, look, you are misreading the situation. And he's like, I just need to give you guys a warning that you are not seeing what is happening very clearly. Let me tell you a story. 
Does that make sense? The other place I could see Jesus being in this story would be maybe one of the people who's executed at the end. He's certainly not the only person crucified by the Roman powers, and he is about to go be executed. So in his mind, he might be like, look, I'm about to get executed publicly in front of a whole lot of people. And it's a little bit of a hard story because it just leaves it there. Right? It's almost like Jesus doesn't finish it. He's in a place where we see throughout that week as he's going on to his, his road to death, his Via Dolorosa, right? He's about to be, uh, go, through, go through some things. Uh, we see a little bit of despair in him, which I think is relatable. I think a lot of times when people are trying to fight like systemic evil or big powers, there are places where it's like, I can just see where this is going and it's not going to be good. And you start to feel this despair. And that's kind of what I feel in Jesus' telling of the story because he doesn't offer any hope at the end of it, right? For me, the hopeful thing comes in the larger context of the gospel, right? And so the gospel says, yeah, that sometimes is what happens to people who take on systemic evil, but the story doesn't end there, right? The story doesn't end with just the death or the execution. Jesus was put to death by the powers. He was condemned to die, falsely accused, executed. But then the story tells us that God overturned that death sentence and declared it unjust, right? God stands with the, with the he vindicates or stands with the innocent of the world. He stands with the people who are speaking out, who are trying to not participate in these unjust systems. Right, that this is the power that is behind us. And that the people who were with Jesus were just like misunderstanding how God's power works. Like they wanted him to like go in and just be like, I'm going to lead sort of a military revolution. Some of them thought that, not all. And he's just saying like, that's, that's not how this works. What I'm going to do is I'm going to lay down my life for the sake of love. And for me, this seems like a much more, um, it resonates more as an interpretation for this parable than if you don't use all your gifts and talents to the fullness at all times, every time for God's glory, God is going to take everything away from you and maybe you'll die, right? That just seems like that doesn't have a whole lot of meaning for us. But if we look at this parable, I think the, the note that I made to myself for future Emily was, maybe this is a story about how power and privilege work, right? And there's moments when power can be taken on by people who seem powerless, but there's also a lot of truth in this story that just tells us how power operates. That sometimes the people who have the most continue to get more. I was just looking up the stat this morning. I was like, okay, the top 10 richest people gained another $850 billion during the pandemic alone. While the, the poorest in our country, like the poverty rate went up 1%, and for children it was higher than that. And so there's some truth that just resonates in this story about how power works. And so maybe it's a story that we can take just as sort of wisdom in that space to be like, oh, I see what's going on here. And Jesus also was able to see what was going on here. So I hope that that is a little helpful reinterpretation of that story. It's made me enjoy it a bit more. As we go into our meditation, the, the, the uh, verse that kept coming to my mind is actually a verse from the Hebrew scriptures, from Zechariah chapter 4. And it just says, this is God was speaking to the prophet, saying, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And I thought that might be a helpful thing for us to just sit with for a minute or so of silence 
not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And we know that the spirit of God is love. So come Lord Jesus, come spirit, sit with us and teach us. God, we know sometimes it feels like evil will just prevail. Sometimes it seems like that won't go away. We know that sometimes despair can set in when we're looking at these these things. Um, And we know that you felt that kind of despair and that you relate to that. But we also know that dragons can be slayed and that they're slayed by your spirit, by love, by justice, by peace, by joy, by integrity, by calling out some of the corrupt systems of this world like that third servant in the story did. And so I ask, Lord, that you would help us to hold on to hope, to be infused with your spirit, um, that we would have hope that it's never the end of the story when we feel like darkness will just prevail. That's never the end of the story. And we know that you know intimately each step along that path and that you've experienced the whole range of emotions in there. So I ask that you would continue to give us wisdom, that you would teach us how to see power and how to think differently through the lens of what it means to be filled with your spirit and to operate with that power, which is a different kind of power. We ask that you would fill us and infuse us as we go into our weeks, that we could love people the best that we can as we go out. In your name we pray. Amen.